Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She is the Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. This show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? This podcast is recorded on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabewaki, and the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. This land is covered by Treaty 13, signed with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Listeners, I am so excited to introduce our guest today, Dr. Steve Bell. He is a Principal Research Fellow at the University of Queensland Posh Centre for Indigenous Health at the Faculty of Health and Behavioural Sciences in Australia. So... I'll tell you a little bit more about him and then he's going to introduce himself. So he's an applied health and social researcher with 20 years experience doing research on sexual, reproductive and maternal health, HIV and other infectious diseases. He is currently working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in remote regional and urban settings across Australia, as well as with excluded and stigmatized communities in Asia and the Pacific, Indonesia, and Papua New Guinea specifically. And he's also worked in other contexts in Sub-Saharan Africa and Asia and India and Nepal. Wow, you've done a lot of work. And the other things I'll say about him is he is a joint editor at Sexual Health and on the editorial advisory board for Culture, Health, and Sexuality, both journals, which I really love and which I've also put some of our work in. So welcome, Steve. How are you today? I'm really great. It's so exciting to be here. Thanks for having me. So normally I say how I've met somebody. I don't think we've met other than by email and because you have a a new book actually uh, that came out on peer research and health and social development, international perspectives on participatory research. And I was lucky enough to take part in one of the chapters in that. So that's, that's the only way I know you from, right? We haven't met personally. No, that's right. Yeah, no, we thought we'd try luck and see if we could invite you to write a chapter in a book. And you responded and said, yes, it was really exciting. <laughs> so the next thing is, once all the travel bans are listed, you're going to invite me to come visit you because no. I have never, uh, I've never been. Where is the University of Queensland? That's in that's in Brisbane. Yeah, so Brisbane. I've never been to Brisbane no, I, or Sydney. I've only been to Melbourne. Yeah, so we're in Sydney at the moment, moving up to Queensland later the year. So Brisbane's pretty new to me, but I imagine if you came over, there'd be a whole bunch of people that would want you to come meet them. So um, uh, <laughs> we, can, we can set up a tour. <laughs> let's dream for post-COVID travel plans. Oh my God, yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> so I've I've kind of given a little bit of an introduction to you, Steve. And I wonder, and I know you probably have a lot of practice with this. If you're in an elevator with a stranger going up a couple floors 
And I say, hey, what kind of work do you do? How do you describe that in your elevator pitch? Well, I, um, yeah, I'd say I'm a social researcher with a, with a real interest in like everyday life experiences of health and well-being. I'm passionate about qualitative participatory and ethnographic research and, and really the way that we, it helps gather stories around all those social structural influences on people's lives and the kind of action and strategies they use to navigate and negotiate and, and resist some of those to enhance, enhance health. Um, and, and then more, more recently, pushing more and more for community-led research, working working to support communities. Researchers become skilled in all aspects of the research cycles so that it's all led by, determined by, and um, all that analysis and you know, thinking about data is 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 all done together. Um, so that's kind of where I'd pitch it. I mean, it, it, in all honesty, somebody asked me, I go, I'm a health researcher, and hope they don't ask any more. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, that's that's a summary. Yeah, I used to be afraid to say, depending on the time of day, like I'm not a morning person. You know, if I'm like traveling or something, and and I say I'm an HIV researcher, I'd be like, oh, am I going to get questions about HIV? Me before I drink coffee. <laughs> yeah, no, it takes me back to the PhD days where you know I opted to go and do something a bit different to a whole bunch of mates, and they were off on these graduate trainee schemes doing all the boring jobs in the city. And you'd be invited out for dinner, and they'd be like, "So what do you do?" It's like I'm doing a PhD around HIV in Uganda, and that conversation just ends because they don't know where to take it. <laughs> yeah. It was the way I, I used to work in Haiti after the earthquake and there's no direct flight from Toronto. So you would either have to fly like once a week through Montreal, but more likely flying through like New York or Miami from Toronto. So I, I have to get up really early. And so I'd get on the plane in the U.S. and there'd be like tons of people with matching t-shirts like from religious groups and i would just be tired i gotta been up since 4 a.m just get my window seat and they'd be like what do you do and i just be like hiv research and they would just turn away and not want to talk to me i'm like yes (laughs) (laughs) anyways i'm gonna show up right now to sydney where you still are to your house and I'm going to bring my time machine and there's room for physically distancing. And I'm going to say, Steve, bring me back to the time and place where you were thinking, oh, I want to do participatory research or HIV research or basically where you ended up now. Where would we go in the time machine? And it can have multiple stopovers. Um, So straight out of uni, I did a geography degree at university. And Which university? Uh, Leeds in the UK. Um, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm British originally. And uh, it, they kind of the only thing that really grasped my interest was the international development courses. And so straight out of uni, I, w- I went and worked in Zimbabwe, this was in 2001, on um, an HIV prevention project where some group of Europeans joined a group of Zimbabweans and we worked, partnered off in rural communities doing HIV prevention teaching really and it was um it was a like a 10 month a 10 month program and and we were working with this NGO that kind of um presented itself as empowering young people to take control over their health and and um you know HIV prevention and it was all based around knowledge and and, and it, it all in very individual like it was teaching and life skills based and um it really raised some questions around you know where does family come in where did the health services come in where does well even the, the peer relationships between young people you know like different age groups and and also this was down in Bulawayo and um 
it was it was it was rural. There was it was borehole. There was no electricity, and all those kind of just day to day day to day life challenges and stuff. It's like where does all that come in? So out of that, I went back to London and um, tried to get a job in an NGO. Like I wasn't qualified to get any, to get anything in an NGO, not even like in a, an office. Well, well, welcome somebody into the office or anything like that. But I just go back to uni and do it and do some more do some more um studies on it because it just really sparked an interest and um it was during the phd which was all uganda based over a four-year period I was there for about two years and that was around what does empowerment mean in relation to young people and that's where i found peter agleson's work on you know systematic structuring of vulnerability and he had these two really good books on youth and sex and drugs and international international public health and that kind of just took me on a trajectory for trying to explore all those you know, an individual in really complicated contexts, and um, and um, the international development side of things was the participatory research, right? Robert Chambers and put put in the last first, and um, just I was just really up for trying lots of different methods, and and I guess that's where it was, that's that's where it got started. I mean, one particular. Uh, area in, in Uganda on the border of Kenya it's called Mbali I don't know whether you've been there I know you work in Uganda a bit and um, I don't think I've been there oh it's just um, it's just the most beautiful place and um, yeah. it, 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 I was just really unable to try and unpack all of that stuff that kind of sparked interest got into theories around power and resistance and, um, and all that kind of stuff so that's where I ended up that's where I started and that's where it's ended up and um yeah, I couldn't be more grateful. In fact, that before I went to Zimbabwe, I was actually going to go on an environmental management program, but um, because of the politics, yeah, politics Mugabe, the, um, the there was a round of elections, and the area where that environmental program was taking place was too dangerous for us to go. So they said you can either go to Tanzania to do the environmental program or Zimbabwe and do the sexual health stuff. And I was just so dead. I'm going to say, don't say I'm going to Zimbabwe. I said, oh, I'll just go do sexual health. <laughs> it could have been so different. <laughs> That's so funny. So, okay, I'm trying to figure out the time machine starts in England. You know, we have a lot of connections because I don't know if you know that my mom's from England. My mom's from Newcastle. Newcastle, My grandma's from Ireland. My dad's from Glasgow. So, like, we have the whole UK thing and Ireland thing. And then we go to Zimbabwe and then we go back to England and then we go to Uganda. Yeah. So I was actually supposed <laughs> to I was, I was supposed to go back to Zimbabwe to do the PhD, but you know, and more build up to more to more elections just was the the charity was getting raided and was was having some some um safety safety issues. So they I was like, okay, where do I go next? Like where 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 would be most useful in terms of their other work that they're doing? And um and they said Uganda and uh, I was just so so grateful. Like I went back in 2011 to to Mbali just to chase up all the kids, they were like 13 through 17 or something like that when I was doing my PhD in 2011. They were all like, you know, in life stage, they're all older than me. They had kids and they were doing jobs and they were questioning my fertility because I didn't have kids and all that kind of stuff. It was uh, yeah. like, you know, lifelong friendships there as well. That's amazing. Yeah, I've been working, I guess, three years in Uganda, but it feels like forever. <laughs> but yeah, the recent election also had some, yeah. gave some challenges to the our colleagues. Yeah, and then Peter Eggleton. Yeah. What? There's a lot of connections here. This is wonderful. Yeah, he's, he's been uh, an amazing mentor. And, um, yeah, a great, great, great friend as well. So. One thing I noticed about your work, which really... I just really like the diversity of the communities you work with. Like I noticed you work with 
Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and also sexually and gender diverse youth, and you work with HIV, and you do have so many things that are often intersecting with stigma. And so I wonder from your perspective, how does stigma show up in your work? What does it look like today in 2021 in the various communities that you're working with and maybe in Australia? And if you're, it sounds like you're still working in other, other contexts too. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's everywhere. I just, um, you know, in its broadest sense of difference by identity and, and, and a hierarchy of, of identities from most powerful to least powerful, you know, that's that deliberate production of difference, be it by race, be it by gender, be it by sexuality is just central to pretty much everything that we do in, in the work that we're all working in. Like, um, We've got uh, this recent work in Indonesia and, and, and Uganda has been supporting PhD students doing their work. And um, there was a, a re- really great Indonesian young lady called Elan Lazuadi who's who did four years of work with uh, men of sex with men and gay men in, in, in Indonesia in, in three settings and then did this really good ethnographic in one of the settings. And it was all documenting that kind of the strengths of community, the strength of, of solidarity, creating safe spaces, but also the expertise of community members to draw on their life experience and navigate you know, real medical services that are not really set up for people to understand and engage with and certainly not engage with in a safe way um you know judged on their hiv status and their sexuality um sexuality you know oh just the 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 political stuff around around not being heterosexual in in indonesia is um i just it just frames everything to do with to do with engaging with with health services and trying to be healthy and um like similarly that we had a, a a couple of PhD students, a guy called Christopher, who's who did his work with Fisher Folk in in on, on just around Lake Victoria, and and that was really around um, you know HIV related stigma and and uh, but also also uh, judge moral judgments around the work they did, the way that they lived their lives, and um, you know being excluded from families. Um, not being able to tell people about who they were and, you know, just just who they are as human beings. And um, it just always comes back to being that that, discrimination and and, and in Uganda, criminalization of of being gay is extraordinary. Yeah. 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 And I think it was the thing that sparked the interest way back was, I don't know why, I don't really know why, um, was the kind of the moral judgments around young people having sex when they shouldn't, when they weren't married and mm-hmm. having sex when they shouldn't have been having sex? Yet when you interviewed their parents and their grandparents, it was like, well, did you do those things? Like, yeah, we did those things as well. Like, it's just that you know, just like as soon as you try to transition out of it, suddenly it's it's bad and wrong. And some of the quotes I had from the PhD research around people's yeah people being told off by health workers and never going back to a health service, and then where that leads in terms of pregnancy and abortion left you know strategies to try and try and have abortions and uh, it's just so it's just uh, makes me really angry to be honest is what is what yeah i i feel like and that's something i i bring up sometimes on this podcast is around the stigma around sex that still persists yeah and especially you know towards sex 
period and then towards young people having sex yeah. towards gay people having sex towards sex workers having sex you know yeah. but like the young people just the very fact can get so much judgment and shame and blame and you know i think it still exists in many places in the world i mean i'd say probably yeah. most countries except for maybe a couple that might be sex positive maybe yeah. like I, the netherlands yeah. i don't know like sweden yeah. I don't really know where the world is super sex positive so i i yeah i totally i totally appreciate that no young person is going to stop if, if they if they want to do it nobody's going to stop doing it it's just like without that all that support networks it just happens secretly and with all those consequences and without having to be able to even talk to a friend that they trust most for risk of gossip and you know it's just I don't know where we go with that to be honest yeah and what about your work in Australia what kind of things are you up to so when I moved over to UNSW University of New South Wales in, in Australia it was a move back into academia I hadn't I've been working as a as a research consultant for the consultant arm of Mary Stopes for a year and a half and doing and doing oh mary stopes i've heard about them yeah they're a maternal health a sexual reproductive health charity but they had it's like a not-for-profit consulting arm called options so kirsten hawkins who did the who published the peer research methodology and social science medicine way back which kind of simulated all my interest in the peer-led work she was a director there and um oh wow and um so so i moved back over to us moved I moved to Australia to do a one-year job on HIV policy in Europe. I don't know how I managed to wangle that one, um, but it was a stepping stone. So you moved to Australia to do work in Europe? Yeah. <laughs> I, like, like, yeah. Hmm, I think I like the weather better yeah. here. <laughs> but I was like, I, you know, I, I'll, give it a, I'll give it a go. And if there was a dream, then it would have been to try and get involved in uh, some Pacific work. And um, and also, if there was the slightest possibility to get involved in any Indigenous health research in Australia, then I'd have grabbed it. And it was at Centre for Social Research and Health, which is where Peter was. Mm-hmm. That was for 15 months and then transitioned to the Kirby Institute, which is an infectious disease institute, but mostly epidemiologists and, and, and lab, lab researchers. But it was that jump that enabled me to get involved in Indigenous health research which is when i first met james ward who's an aboriginal professor who's now my boss i would like him to also come on the podcast i met him in vancouver a couple of years Uh, ago uh, at conference like there's this it's like an STI, HIV and STI yeah. conference. And yeah. I spoke to him briefly and probably doesn't remember me, but the, the invitation is, is out there. <laughs> <laughs> we'll yeah. share this with him. <laughs> so you met him. Yeah. So um, there were two projects. I, was, I moved across to Kirby to kind of coordinate two Indigenous health projects in Central Australia. And um, they were, they're both um, youth focused. One, one in particular was, was a youth focused project, which was, a trial trying to evaluate the effectiveness of incentives to increase engagement with STI testing, but they hadn't really done any any qualitative work with young people, and young people weren't involved in the design of the project. So I kind of pushed for a, a period of, of formative qual research to help work out whether the whether the the strategies proposed in the trial would were, were going to be valued or or. or or useful to young people so mm. um and it was also a chance to try this you know the peer method the peer research methodology again and um and that that led to like a chunk of time in central australia around alice springs and some of the remote communities around there and it was we've had a few outputs that have kind of taken a strength-based approach to 
to, to working with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people, and also try and unpack some of that, you know, all those kind of social structural influences and and what young people are already doing to to enhance sexual health. So using that as a baseline for health promotion activities is like this is this is what's already happening. Can we build on that? Can we learn on that to enhance any kind of health promotion stuff that's happening? That that was really the focus of the Indigenous health work. Um, and then alongside that, it was a chance to go and work in Papua New Guinea as well. So we've um, got um, a bunch of HIV-related projects and and a, and a youth pregnancy project there, actually, um, which has been hit by COVID hugely, like, um, you know, the, the constraints of doing research. It's, it's in partnership with the um, the PNGIMR, Institute for Medical Research. Um, there's got this great team of, of Papua New Guinean researchers who, who basically lead everything. Oh, right? wow. you, I come in and help do some capacity building and training around the specific aspects of the projects and support and learning around the thematic analysis uh, and things like that. So yeah, it's kind of it's kind of varied. And I'm now I'm at a youth post centre, which is uh, five years with a with a core focus on um, urban indigenous health, which is which is which is really exciting. Yeah, uh, like it. You know, I was getting I was getting to the point where um, I was I was trying to work out where I go and um, where I was offered lots of exciting opportunities, but probably wasn't the right place to be doing. To, to try and for me to commit to doing indigenous health research just because there wasn't that support from senior indigenous health researchers and that's why i jumped into the opportunity to, to, to work with james but you know he's um he's absolutely brilliant and he's got so many so many ideas i saw uh when i was in auckland at a one of the SGI conferences i saw him present and i saw other people present and they had these really cool posters the posters were like really sex positive posters. Yeah, that's his young with in, indigenous youth. It was really cool. I was like, oh, these posters were really fun. You could tell that yeah. youth had been involved in making them because they were actually cool. <laughs> yeah, that's the young deadly free work that he did with um, yes, uh, Amanda. Yes. Amanda, um, can't remember her name, but she's um, yeah. That was uh, four or five years of of work. In in communities with young people, with you know, in terms of self determination and community leadership, it was it was just totally directed by by those important principles. And there's a series of posters, a series of multimedia films. It's it's really really great. So I think the um, the research that I do is all about prioritizing the the expertise and gain through experience and. Um, you know, there's calls in in all sorts of different public policies for community involvement in in X Y Z. You know, community led, community co designed, and the aim there is to try and level out who ha- who influences what in terms of appropriate ways of enhancing sexual health or 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 preventing HIV or enabling greater engagement with HIV services on the care continuum and. And there's medical expertise and there's epidemiological expertise and and it's really this area of trying to centralise community voice and community experience and community expertise. So that's what drives the work that I, I like doing. And it's, it's also tricky. It's like qualitative research set alongside those other knowledges is is already like pushed pushed down as being less important and trying to encourage other people to engage in the value of 
of what in-depth data, in-depth insight from you know small sample sizes, and 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 going through that whole process of of defending the rigor of of research of, of qualitative research. So it's trying to centralize community voice and experience, but also push the qualitative research agenda and get it on a, a level playing field. Yeah. The, the earliest phase of HIV responses has all been ultimately been community led. The, the Uganda stuff around, around those early messages around zero grazing, the metaphors of, of what's understood by community was, was what it enabled Uganda to make some initial progress in terms of that. And, and, and the, the gay communities in Sydney, um, you know, this coming up with serious sorting and 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 making those just coming up with strategies to enable them to have safe sex, safe sex with people that they want to have sex with. And um, mm-hmm. and again, it's like community knowledge, community expertise. And and um, I think um, it's really exciting to to see other people doing that kind of work and trying to encourage some of the PhD students that I work with to to not come at, at these issues as all, all this constraint and all this all this problem and all this I mean that's all that's all really important important those you know I think you've, you've, you've used this socio-ecological model a lot and trying to unpack all those different influences on, on a person's life but it's not just all the all the bad influences but it's where the sp- the spaces of opportunity are for people to carve out a life that they want to lead to lead and and do so in ways that contradicts and challenges all those restrictions mm-hmm. so um I, I guess the the stuff that i enjoy doing around around the, the, the phd supervision is encouraging students to think about about all of that side of things as well as all the crap associated with with you know ill health mm-hmm. you're making me think of two things both on other podcasts one of them is judy arbach i don't know if you listen to her podcast oh, she yeah. talked about the stigma towards social sciences <laughs> and so this disciplinary stigma where social science is devalued and why you know maybe that's because community knowledge and is is put below like the yeah biomedical expertise <laughs> and the other one is yasmin prasad who's a trans woman activist of color and she often talks about laughing that people will just assume that her life is so sad <laughs> you know and just like what you know like these people just create this sort of yeah this all the problems that they imagine that people are experiencing which may or may not be true but without seeing the there's also joy and love and friendship and laughter and you know resistance there's just also just you know in the world and so so she's often in the podcast and and we did a video series that she led and a book chapter coming out in a book i'm working on but she's she's always just saying to, to researchers like or other people like we're just like you <laughs> like we also have life and yeah and it's not just a bunch of sad stories but yeah it's all you, you i always say to my students you get what you ask for yeah so if you're no, only going to ask people about their problems they're going to tell you their problems <laughs> but if you're going to ask them what is going well in your life what do you like to do like you're going to ask them about the joy or their their other aspects of life they're going to tell you so it's like we get what we ask for yeah absolutely yeah all that all that early work on designing a project and translating that through objectives into discussion guides into conversations into analyses it just all if you don't do it from that first point it just yeah it's um i think 
having the new research, having the confidence to go and have those conversations and just not knowing where they're going to go and, and just be willing to go, well, let's learn a little bit about people's lives and see if any of that brings back to the, to, you know, the issue of the health issue, which we want to focus on or this new, new role. I'm working with a couple of really experienced um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander researchers who have used um, indigenous methodologies. There's there's an overlap between mm. you know participatory, interpretive, qualitative methodologies and, and and indigenous methodologies, but the storytelling around and and letting people tell stories and come back to answering the question. In, in a way that makes sense to them is is something that I'm really excited to learn more about because it's 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 a different way of uh, a different way of conversation and um, and just trusting that that the it will come back and you know that that the anxiety of 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 of, of doing a of doing qualitative research and sometimes not knowing where it's going to go <laughs> is going to be tested a little bit but it's um, you're letting go of control a little bit. I remember we, <laughs> I think it was the first time we did art space methods. It was in Haiti and we got a bunch of Polaroids and we gave them to young people who were displaced from the earthquake and we asked them just to take pictures of their life. Yeah. Some people, they brought pictures I could never have imagined. And some of them were so different and we learned so much. Like a lot of the boys, when they took pictures of, of donkeys, they took pictures of their bikes, they took pictures of the fields, you know, and, and we're like, Oh, and then the girls, you know, one took a picture of herself being reenacting, being attacked. Mm. Like they're totally different fire, the chickens, like they were just different. Yeah. But things that, I couldn't have imagined that they would have taken the photos that they took. Yeah. You know? Because you just really give the person the chance to tell whatever's on their mind or whatever they, they they're thinking of, right? It's it's very unexpected. Yeah, totally. We've got the um the final stage of the pregnancy amongst young people project in Papua New Guinea is using photo-based methods to we, uh, the interviews have been done and we're just getting the data back. So we're gonna do some analysis on that data just to okay. to see what's coming out and and try and use the photo-based work to either build a deeper picture of some of those issues or explore some issues that which we were were totally unexpected and we didn't know were gonna come up. And so it'll be really exciting. And see where that goes i've not i've not done photo based research before and um I, yeah i'm really really excited to go to to try it out i would love to hear more about your work there because i know that there's a lot of st stigma experience at least with some of the the young people that we work with mm. uh, who are refugees in uganda when they're pregnant as teenagers are not allowed to go to school yeah because okay. they're considered to be a bad influence so it can really like ruin people's like future prospects at least for a while if you're not allowed to finish secondary school yeah. you know yeah we had that in the um in in, in, in my phd research so the stories of young women and young men who'd um who fought and pregnant and been chased away from family, been excluded from school. There was one one 18 year old girl who had just come back into school having had a baby. And um and she was just I remember her talking about it, just really going for life and grabbing it and yeah, it's it's about needing to get it over the stigma around sex, man. Yeah. <laughs> That's like <laughs> Oh, it is totally, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you have what do you have in your mind that 
you think listeners could do to reduce some of the types of stigma or uh, issues we've been talking about? If someone's listening to this podcast, walking their dog, what do you want them to walk away with or an action you want them to take to be part of, you know, addressing some of the different kinds of stigma discrimination that you experience in your work or that you look at? I think it comes back to really emphasizing and encouraging people to just put themselves in other people's shoes and and just be like, this is you or this is your brother or sister or this is your child. Is, is all this okay? You know, like, like would you like those people that you care about and and love to not have the support that they need or to be booted out of their own families or to be judged when they go to a health service or, you know, to be picked up by the police and beaten to near death in some places, in some places, it's, it's just like these, they're human beings and, and have a right to be treated as human beings and, and cared for and hugged and all those kind of, um, it's just, I think it's about empathy and then, and then I guess, and then acting like, you know, if, if people can go through that process and, 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 and feel it or try and feel it and imagine what it must be to experience and to just start standing up for it. And to, you know, it's that advocacy stuff and the activism stuff to, to get out there, go march or, or protest or pick up friends who are doing the wrong thing or saying the wrong things. And I think it's largely about, about that, the, transition to action i just um I, you know if they come back to it and they think they still think that's all right then you know that plus cause i guess <laughs> but i think i think it's about the about the feeling and 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 empathy and, and then action it's, it's, i think it's got to be that's that's great and I, I i do think that those are totally key to reducing stigma is really trying to understand what other people are going through. That's why so many people use speakers bureaus or even in the U.S. when I lived in the U.S., LGBTQ panels, I was part of one of them going different classes and hoping that somebody listening will be like, oh, you know, these are actual humans. And when I, I lived in Ghana, we would go with a woman living with HIV and when she disclosed her status, people were like, oh my gosh, I never, I never knew anybody living with HIV before you know and so I think part of it is people don't necessarily see the humanity because they don't think they've been exposed to somebody mm. who is like whatever it is that they have never encountered so they have like an idea of a difference that is likely not true but they just they haven't met anybody yeah. or had a conversation or realized oh we both love coffee or we both hate coffee or you know what I mean it's yeah. like we have so many things in common you know or at least just like have a, a conversation and realize oh we we have shared hopes or dreams or yeah you know, fears or I think the um you know the, the media the social media and um and politicians playing games with issues to to stay in to stay in power and like there's a huge responsibility there that's just not being delivered on and and um you know there's more of us than those people driving politics and driving media and um i don't, I don't know how you get to that the tipping point of of engaging and empathizing and an and action like um I, I mean i guess if if the answer to that was easy then everybody would be trying to enforce change already wouldn't they <laughs> That's true. Yeah, there was, I was part of this documentary that just came out and it was really 
beautifully done. I was a small part in it, like a tiny miniature part in it. But it was Coven Wang read a story about a, a shop owner, a flower shop owner in Toronto. And this is around February of last year of 2020 when Trump was calling coronavirus the China virus. And mm. there was all these increased hate crimes towards people of Asian descent. And so this shop owner who was born in Canada, his family was born in Canada, but he was Asian Canadian, had a a white woman come in and totally scream at him and be super racist and tell him to go back to where he came from, even though, you know, he's born in Canada. And so he made this documentary about this experience. And then what happened was all of the people in the neighboring shops came and like had fundraisers and did like all this wonderful like solidarity work so like the documentary ends up being really hopeful but it it it, it was really about the neighbor taking action being like he read about it on social media he's like this isn't right this shouldn't have happened to my neighbor the shop flower shop owner I've, i'm making burgers and if you prove that you bought something from his flower store, you get a free burger on me. Mm, <laughs> so he sold out of like all of the burgers. I'm sorry, he sold out all the flowers. He said, you better get ready to sell everything. And, <laughs> and, and the flower shop owner sold every single thing out of his flower shop. And, and the person with the burger store said like, I did this to show also my, my kids, this is how you're supposed to act. And I just thought like, yeah. that is such a cool act what you said is like you're empathizing oh this is somebody a store owner like me but he's being attacked and i'm actually going to do something you know and it it really transformed the life i think of both people you know that the fact that out of some tragedy could come this sort of like deeper kind of bond because it was an action taken you know of like that's like allyship you know when it's it's not just performative it's like actually I'm going to do something to try to make this situation better. Yeah. Reminds me of those, um, you know, all the early reading I did around, around power and power to make change, power with others, power within oneself, those kind of ideas. And there was this really cool paper on subtle strategies, which... Oh, I can't even remember where it was. It was like a Pacific Island setting, I think. And it documented all those really discreet, quiet, forms of action that women made within their home lives and and together in communities to to overcome patriarchy and to challenge imbalance and gender relations and um that always comes back to those ideas around um what are those small local things that that make lives better that could be built on to become something bigger and um i love that kind of stuff and that those kind of stories yeah, just like how one small action yeah. to you could actually, you know, make this yeah. big, this big change. You're awesome. Okay, before we get to the wild cards, is there anything last thing you want to say? Or before we move to the wild cards, let's, let's go to the wild. Let's, let's go to the wild cards. I'm slightly nervous about the wild cards. Okay, all right, all right. <laughs> the wild cards. Okay, wild card number one. You ready? What are you watching on Netflix? I know it's not Drag Race, so what are you watching? <laughs> well, I'm watching Netflix. So that I think that depends on whether my three-year-old daughter or I get control of the buttons. If it's, what if you if, get control? If I get control of the buttons, it would be... So what, the last thing, the last really good thing I watched on Netflix was The Serpent. I don't know whether you've seen that. That's, um, no. It's like a mini-series, true crime, around um, a serial killer in Thailand who was you know committing serious crimes against backpackers going through and it's that kind of that's terrible 
It's so, it's so terrible. Why would you watch but it's, that? But it's also, you know, there's these few people that, 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 that don't let it drop and they, they force the police to go get him and they document the stories. And, and it's also filmed beautifully, like good music, good cinematography, all that kind of stuff. It's really cool. Okay. I used to love CSI Miami. I used to love it a lot because we like, cane and the cheesiness of the glass you know there's drinking games every time he took his glasses off and then I just become as I get older I don't want to go on a roller coaster I don't want to watch anything scary oh, yeah. I can't do anything like that I'm like I just want to watch Drag Race Shit's Creek good place <laughs> yeah. oh there's a fair there's a fair amount of that I've got a serious <laughs> guilty secret around musicals so I more than happily watch anything musical best as well <laughs> Uh, okay, so I'm not going to watch The Serpent. You, you no, because I used to backpack a lot. Okay. And, and so the, the, yeah, yeah, I know that's why I did as well, and it's just like, oh my god, okay. that was. Um, I, I watched. I've watched half of the um, the Oprah Winfrey, Prince Harry mental health thing. Oh, how is that? It's, it's interesting, and it, it's really nice to hear people talking openly about about their mental health, especially after the last eighteen mm-hmm. months. Like, I don't, I don't imagine anybody's been unaffected. Yeah, and and you know, being a Brit, I'm not I'm not a fan of the royal family. I think as an institution, it just needs to be forgotten about. But there's that part of me that loves the gossip, and, <laughs> you know. And Prince Harry is dishing it on on on, nice. on everybody that he should. Nice. Be. Yeah, so that's but it's yeah, that's that's really it's interesting, and and um, you know, as well as the celebrities, it's got other people that have been doing amazing stuff. Oh, that sounds good. Um, I, I'd like to get. I don't think we can get it in Canada yet, so hopefully. It'll move here. Um, okay, wild card number two. You could go for dinner anywhere in the world with anybody you want, living or dead. Where do you go and who do you take? Oh, um, it's got to be my mum and dad. They're probably not the most interesting responses. I haven't seen them for two years. Don't tell them that. They might be listening. <laughs> Don't listen to they them. They might be listening. Yeah, got to be them. They haven't met my son who's where are they they're in they're, they're in the uk so so i'd meet them in oh god the south bank in london for pizza and wine on a warm <laughs> on one of those few warm nice. bright blue sunny English days and um my family would be there mum and dad i'd have to my sister and her fellow my brother and her, his husband and their kids i like it would be a bit of a party i think we'd have to have a party did you grow up in london or where did you grow up in england Southeast. So it was brought, uh, moved around a bit until I was about 12. And then from 12 on was, was down in Kent in the Southeast corner. But I was in London for 12 years or so. So like, yeah, we were, they, they come up for dinner. I'd meet them on the South Bank. We'd have dinner, they'd go home. That's, that'd be so nice to be able to do that right now. Just to go uh, somewhere. Yeah. Okay. When that happens, send me a selfie. But also I had a fellowship I mean, everybody's lost more than this, but I'll just say I had a fellowship to be in London for a month last March um, at the British Library as part of my sabbatical. But I had to leave when Trudeau told all the canoes to go come home. I was actually in Copenhagen doing a talk. Well, I was supposed to do a talk in Copenhagen. I was doing Sweden and then Copenhagen and then they shut down Copenhagen and closed the airport. So I had to like fly back and then Trudeau was like, fly back. So oh, I had to, I missed, I was only in London for like a week. So I feel like. I, <laughs> you were there in March. It's not the best time to be in London. <laughs> I 
know, but I was sad that I didn't get my month. I had a whole Airbnb uh, yeah. plan. So when I go back, you have to tell me the good place, the good places. Cause I, I also didn't know where was the good places of London that I was there in like a week. So I was like, okay. So that, yeah. that sounds. I really have no yearning to be back in London. Like it's a crazy city and it's a big city, but I think um, it would just be really nice to conveniently be able to see family. Pizza and wine in your family? Why not? That's Yeah, good. pizza and red wine and mum and dad. It would just be brilliant. Yeah, dad and I are pretty similar. We we would get drunk and say stupid <laughs> stupid jokes and that'd be it. It'd be really great. <laughs> nice. Okay. I got one last wild card before I let you out into the day. The last wild card is what is a piece of advice or wisdom or song lyric that has been helpful to you that you want to share with the listeners? Oh god. That's a tricky one. A saying, a quote. I think it would be Peter really encouraged me to just to always always seek to be surprised and i think that's i think that's the you know when you oh, i love that from when you're doing analysis or from when you're having conversations like mm-hmm. it's um a search for something you hadn't thought about like constantly ch- challenging your ideas and and speaking with people that are gonna challenge your ideas i think is and that's what that would be it. i love it i just wrote that down seek to be surprised i think I have a a whiteboard by my desk. I'm going to write that down because I love that. Because sometimes I say like, oh, I I like to be proven wrong. But like, that's kind of a negative way of saying it. I kind of like this. like (laughs) Because seeking to be surprised is a better way of saying that, you know, because it's more positive. And it's also like, like you don't know everything. Therefore, you can be surprised. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I think it's so, definitely, it, it tips that. Oh, there's, there's too many people that, that know what they know and they say it strongly and uh, I think it's nice to challenge. Nice. I want to say thank you so much. It has been a pleasure. I can't wait to come visit you in Australia in your new place. Yeah, maybe I don't know. <laughs> what are, I think you, you all said twenty twenty two is like or twenty twenty three. I don't even know what year it'll be sometime in the future. But thank you. Let's do it. Thank That'd you be great. so much for coming on the podcast. You're awesome. Well, thanks for inviting me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Lovely to meet you as well. I wish you all the best in your move and uh, the listeners can learn more about you uh, from the link in your bio. So thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us again for more conversations with stigma leaders from around the globe. If you want to listen, what I have to tell you?